Uh, and if you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. I thought about, I thought about buying a coffee mug off Etsy with Jeremiah 29.11. Uh, I'm not much of an object lesson kind of preacher, though, but it, it's a verse so many people maybe have heard. Maybe you've had a coffee mug. Maybe your grandma had a sign that said Jeremiah 29.11. Maybe some well-meaning person said to you, Hey, listen, I know life can be hard, but God says he knows the plans he has for you. Plans for well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You know, God's not giving up. He's going to bring good things into your life. God has plans to prosper you. And actually, the first time I heard this ever actually preached, uh, I was in college, and I heard a guy read this, much like I'm doing now, start with the familiar, and then he preached it backwards, back up to verse 4. And... When I read the context of Jeremiah 29, I was blown away. And I loved getting to see in context what it is. is. This is a great verse of hope. But it's a great verse of hope in its proper context. And the person that did that was actually uh, our former lead pastor and campus pastor, Al Gilbert. That was the first time I ever met him. I went up and sought him out afterwards, and I said, I love what you did with that text. And that began a great friendship between he and I. And so maybe for you, this can be a day like that, where you get some context of a verse that you've heard a lot and we can see what God intended to speak to us. And so this is not a part of a series. We've been in Psalm 23, and then next week you're actually going to get to hear from a guest preacher uh, named Brent Harrison, who's my spiritual director. I'm very excited for you to hear from him. And then in the fall, we're going to dive into the Apostles' Creed. But as I prayed about God, we just have this one week. What do we do with this one week? It's not a part of a series. And I just couldn't help but think all of our lives are getting ready to turn over into the busyness of fall school going back. So many people are in the midst of transition in our church family, looking for jobs, uh, looking for where God has them to be next. And this text just continually got imprinted on my heart. So read with me. Jeremiah 29. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to warn you, there's names you're not going to be able to pronounce. So let's just fight through this together. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, priests, prophets, and all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So, all that to say, this is to all those folk that have been deported in the exile. This is to all those people that have been carried away by this foreign power, Babylon, the big bad Babylon, has come in, taken over God's people, and exiled them out. Now, Jeremiah 29 starts with saying, this is the text of the letter. Jeremiah was kind of written by Jeremiah, but it was put together by Baruch, okay? It's okay to say that the Bible had some editors, not in a way that was trying to smooth out the message, but in a way that was trying to order the message in a God-intended way. So Jeremiah had written these letters. Baruch comes and puts them into some sort of order uh, with Jeremiah's leadership and guidance. So here we are. We're getting to this place in this anthology of letters where Jeremiah is saying, I'm writing to the people in exile. And the previous 28 chapters have been brutal, and now we get this letter, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they're prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Lord Jesus, this is your word. We know that this was a word from Jeremiah to people in exile, but we also believe this is a word to us, for us today. So we want to open our hearts to receive it from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the setting is exile. And exile is a biblical theme that starts in the earliest pages of the Bible as Adam and Eve are exiled, sent out from God's presence in the garden. And then over and over, we see this theme of exile continue to play on as God sends his people from a place they could call home in his presence, out away from his presence because of disobedience. He warns them through so many of the prophets, exile is coming. And now here we find exile has come. Jeremiah has warned that it's going to come if they remain disobedient, if they don't turn back to the Lord. And then now we find them here in exile. This place of exile, though, as we ask, what is it? It's the, maybe what Augustine would have called the city of man as opposed to the city of God. It's the city where Satan rules and brokenness abounds. Can you fill in the gaps on what exile might look like? It's a place of tension rather than a place of peace. Because it's a place where worship and allegiance are are contested in these spaces. In the place of exile, it is not acceptable to worship Yahweh alone. No, you must bow down to whatever the king or God of the land is. And so to worship Yahweh would have been an act of trying to overthrow the leaders and rulers of that place you've been exiled to. Simple things like worship would have been unacceptable. You wouldn't have had your temple comforts to go and make sacrifices, to travel to the Holy Land, to make your yearly feasts would have been impossible. It's a place where life is difficult, where you're not at home. Suffering and sorrow overflows, and we are not in control. So I want to ask you, If you're in Jeremiah 29, how would we respond to exile? I think there's two very common responses to exile. One of them is run away, and the other is rebel against. Let's be frank. We see ourselves in exile here, okay? In the few hundred-year history of our country, some people have thought that this is a Christian homeland. We read Scripture, and we see ourselves, they saw themselves as, hey, we're a new kind of Israel. We're God's people, and this is a Christian place and a Christian country. But I think what we've actually learned is that that's not true, nor has it ever been true. 
okay? We actually live in a place that's more like Babylon than it is like the promised land. So what do we do when we recognize we're in exile? Well, we could run away. This is the option that says the only way through this exile is to go huddle up, become hermits, hunker down, shut the world out, ignore it, retreat from it, and let's try to preserve what we have. Let's run away from the powers that be. Or we could rebel against it. This is the option that says, I can take over this exiled land on their own terms. They want to fight? We'll fight power with power. We can do that. In fact, this is kind of what uh, Hananiah says in the chapter right before in Jeremiah 28. He is one of the false prophets that's talked about in verses 8 and 9. Hey, don't let your prophets deceive you. I'm not speaking through them. He's talking about Hananiah in chapter 28. And Hananiah said, hey, here's what the Lord said. I'm coming. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to break the yoke of that evil, evil Nebuchadnezzar. I'm coming right now. We're, we're going to go to war with him. And that riled the people up. Hey, God, they think they're stronger? Let, let, let's have a battle right now and let's see. Hey, the exile we find ourselves in, in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our schools, they want to fight power with power? We can do that. We can fight power with power. You want to have an evil president conduct your, your evil uh, policies and put evil people in power? Well, guess what? We can elect a president. That'll be better. He'll be just like David. We can fight power with power. We can rebel against the place we find ourselves in exile. And we think we can take it over and rule it ourselves. The problem with this is that that's fighting on their own terms. If we run away, we can have no positive influence. But if we rebel against, then we actually become just like those who took power over us. So what do we do? It seems like we can't run away because we find ourselves in this reality, but it feels like we also can't rebel against because then we become just like the ones who are abusing power, just like the evil that we find ourselves underneath in this exile. So what do we do? God seems to call his people here in verses five through seven to what I'm calling a faithful presence. They're not totally succumbing to the culture of where they've been exiled to. You don't see that at all. God never, ever, ever invites his people to embrace other gods, to, to live in sinful ways. That, that's never what God is inviting them to do. There's no compromise. However, God does say, build houses, plant gardens, and multiply. When you're in this kind of context of exile, you're away from home. I mean, you're a refugee, not even just a refugee. You're fleeing from a violent situation, and you're being forced out. And then God finally speaks a word in this kind of context. What are you hoping to hear from God? Let's be honest. What are you hoping to hear from God? Hey, this isn't going to last long. Hey, I'm coming really soon. Hey, I haven't forgotten about you, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to pay all them back for the evil they've done for you. I know this is evil. I know this is unrighteous. I know this is unjust. I'm coming, and I'm going to put this to rights right now. How dare them do this to my people? Maybe that's the word that people were looking for. Maybe that's why they got so riled up when they heard Hananiah's message. It's what they wanted to hear. But Philip Ryken, who wrote a commentary on Jeremiah, just kind of put his sermons into print. He says that what the exiles saw as abandonment, God saw as mission. 
So while they, they would have been in exile wondering, have you left us? How long are we going to sit here wanting this word from the Lord saying he's coming quickly and he's going to put it all to right? God was saying, I've put you there for a purpose. So settle down. Be in that city for the good of that city. Plant some gardens. Why don't you build a house? Make your neighborhood more beautiful. Don't decrease. Don't run away. Why, why don't you multiply? Pursue marriage for your kids. But what they saw as abandonment, God saw as mission, and he's inviting them to live in a faithful presence in a place where they never wanted to be to begin with. My mind jumps to Acts 17 while Paul is preaching. He says this in Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has de determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. God appoints the times and boundaries even of his own people. Why? For the sake of his name. So that he might be known among the nations, which was his plan in Genesis 1, that the image bearers would have dominion, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Fill it with what? Fill it with image bearers who knew God. And we find such a sinful story in Scripture that the way God begins to fulfill this is sending his disobedient people into exile under, under an evil power using the evil of Babylon, the evil of King Nebuchadnezzar, so that the goodness of God might also go through that disobedient people to a wicked nation. That is how good and sovereign God is. But do you notice what kind of mission he calls them to? What kind of faithful presence? He calls them to do very ordinary things. Build, plant, multiply. Essentially, just live as good, honest, decent people in this place. <clears throat> Work hard. Bless others. Build healthy families. Now, I think they faced in Babylon <clears throat> much what much of the same thing we read that Jonah faces when he's asked to go to Nineveh. Those people? You want me to bless, the, these are the people that have killed my brothers and my cousins and my family and our people in Israel. You want me to bless them? You actually want me to, to pursue the well-being of that city? No. You want me to pursue to love my enemies? I mean, this is Jonah. Jonah said, Nineveh, I'm out. Jonah said he was out so much, they made up a city name to try to describe how far he ran. He was going to Tarshish. Where is that? I don't even know. It's just, I mean, it's like Timbuktu. He's running. He's like, I don't want to go. That's our enemies. I'm not going to go proclaim your goodness there. And at the end of Jonah, we find out why he didn't want to go proclaim God's goodness there, right? Do you remember how Jonah ends? He's pitching a fit under the tree, and even the tree dies, and he curses the tree. And Jonah says, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. Because I knew you were gracious. And I, and I knew when your good word came to them that it would bear fruit. 
that they would repent and be saved. And Jonah says, in my heart, I don't want them to be saved. I wonder if we find ourselves in exile, and sometimes as God's people, we look around at the world and we think, I should be on mission to these people, sharing with these people, but deep in my heart, I don't want them to know the goodness of Jesus. I want them to wallow in their wickedness. I don't want them to turn. Maybe that's what the exiles in Jeremiah 29 thought. As they're living in the neighborhoods of people that are, have murdered their people, taken them out of their land, see them as nothing more than a possession to be had. And now God's asking them to work for the thriving well-being of that city? What kind of mission is that? In fact, how can we do that at all? This word for well-being is a massive word. It's the word shalom. Now, I am very anti using biblical languages from this, play, this pulpit because I don't know them well enough to use them. You don't know them well enough to use them. But if it's a common word that maybe I think you've heard of before, it, it I think can fill in some gaps. Maybe you've heard the word shalom. And it gets translated in a lot of our scriptures as peace. Now I want to ask you, when you think of peace, what do you think of? I think peace is like absence of conflict, right? It's not necessarily something proactive as it is the absence of something else, right? Peace just means, I mean, I just want some peace. Typically, we'll say peace and quiet. I just want some peace and quiet in the house. I just want some peace and quiet. I just want there to be the absence of conflict for five minutes between these children. <laughs> right? And... We define peace by what's not present, but the Bible uses this word shalom to mean so much more than what we would say when we say peace. That's why the CSB translates it as well-being, or uh, what's interesting here is in verse 7, the CSB that I'm using says, when it thrives, you will thrive. It's the verb form of the same word. I want you to prefer, pr pursue the shalom of that city so that when it shaloms, you're going to shalom too. Okay, now wait a minute. So what does shalom mean? is so much more all-encompassing than just peace. It means something like being made whole, lacking nothing, being complete. I want you to pursue the wholeness of the city that I've exiled you to. And when it begins to experience wholeness, you will too. You will lack nothing. We just preached through Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I have everything I need. My question, though, is how can we bring shalom? I can't bring shalom to my own heart, much less my own family, much less my own neighborhood, much less my own church, when we all admit we want shalom too. How can I bring a wholeness, a completeness? God has put me in a place to bring that. Oh, I can't do that. So what do I do? I think we look ahead <clears throat> the Bible's a big narrative, right? It's one big story. So when we find something that we say, this is good, God's commanding something good here, but I don't think they could do it, I don't think I could do it, what do we do? Why don't we look for the perfect exile who left the comforts of home, moved in to a city where he was a threat, 
pursued the perfect wholeness and well-being of that exiled city he was sent to and actually did it. In John chapter 1, Eugene Peterson wrote a translation in very contemporary English called The Message, and here's how he translates John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus willingly went into exile. Philippians 2 says he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to, but he actually let it go. Disrobed his heavenly glory so that he could become like us in flesh and blood. And I love the way Eugene Peterson says that. He moved into the neighborhood. And what happened when he moved in? Everyone saw his glory. And we all received grace upon grace from his fullness is what John 1.16 says. Essentially, Jesus made a way to God. He made his home among us so that he would become like us. And he didn't just plant a garden to feed us. He invited us to eat his flesh and his blood so that we could have life forever. He multiplied not by starting a family with a wife and kids. He multiplied followers who would have a personal relationship with God and teach others to do the same. He didn't just build a home like we read in Jeremiah 29, verse 5, build houses and live in them. He told his followers, I'm going to prepare a place for you in the presence of God forever. So when we read Jeremiah 29 and we see this mission of the exiles, it's important for us first to realize we can't do that. So let's look for the perfect exile, Jesus, who did it perfectly. And let me tell you what, he brings a shalom that you and I could never accomplish on our own. Isn't that what we want in life? We want shalom. Isn't that what your neighbors and your coworkers and your teachers and your kids' teachers and your friends are really looking for? They feel like they're lacking something. They feel incomplete, like something's missing, and they're spending their whole life looking for it. We are spending our whole life looking for it, trying to plug this hole. And we can't figure out why it keeps leaking. We can't figure out why it doesn't hold Why This is Augustine. He says, our hearts were created for you, God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. Our hearts go from thing to thing, thinking maybe this will complete me and satisfy me. Maybe this will bring shalom and wholeness to me. And then when it lets us down and we crush it because it can't hold the weight of being God to us, we move to the next thing. And we move to the next and to the next and to the next. And we find, and our neighbors and our friends find, we can't get shalom on our own. But then what we find is shalom is something to be received. Not to be earned, not to be discovered on our own. Shalom is something Jesus purchased for us, making peace by the blood of his cross. His blood shed, his body broken to make peace between us and God so that we could have shalom forever, so that we could have wholeness with God forever, be lacking nothing forever with God. And then as we see Jesus fulfill Jeremiah 29, then we're able to look at it with a different perspective and say, this isn't something that God's gonna heap on you, go do all this. This is something that God says, you can't, but Jesus did, and now through Jesus, you can live this out too. And now we get to live the faithful presence. 
we often have too narrow of a view of Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare, to prosper you, for goodness, to give you a hope in the future. And we have too narrow of a view of that. We forget that the pathway of prospering goes through exile. But we want prospering from God without exile from God. Did you catch that at the beginning? This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. Who deported? This is what God says to all the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar deported. This is what God says to all the exiles that I deported. When you find yourself in exile, when you find yourself in the desert like Jesus did, in the wilderness, hungry and tempted, stop for just a moment and consider that it's probably God who led you there. Why? Because the promised land only comes after the wilderness. Restoration only comes after exile. Prospering only comes after wandering. And when we want to bypass exile and suffering and sorrow, when we want to bypass, this is the temptation that Satan gave Jesus. Bypass the cross, I'll give you glory now. And Jesus said no. When we want resurrection glory without crucifixion sorrow, we've missed the gospel. We've missed the life that Jesus is actually laying out for us. I hope Jeremiah 29, 11 is true of us, and I believe in Jesus it is, but we have to remember this verse was written to people who were suffering, not to people who had it together. This is written to exiles. And if we're gonna live the faithful presence that God's inviting us to live, we've gotta understand that we're probably never gonna feel like we have it all together. We cannot minister from a place of uh, pure safety and competence. That's not what God's asking us to do. Gosh, my season of life right now is just, it's too much. I'm too busy, I have too much going on. I can't imagine trying to add building houses and planting gardens and loving my neighbors on top of that. I have so much going on. Can I just invite you to consider you'll never not have so much going on? Right? I've watched this. I'm at the stage of life now in my early 30s where I, I, 10 years ago, it's like people were like, I just can't imagine ever getting married and adding that to my life. And then people get married. like, I just, I'm waiting until we feel ready to have kids. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> and we keep saying that, right? And God began to show me eight or nine years ago that I had this idol of my future self, that at some point in the future, I was gonna be so competent, have my life so together, that then God would be super pleased with me because I would be in a competent enough place, a strong enough place where then out of my strength, I could go serve God and make a difference in the world. And God said, are you willing to, to die to the idol of your future self? You have this idol that in the future you're gonna be put together enough that then you'll be pleasing to me. And God says, what if you're pleasing to me right now in all of your incompetence, in all of your weakness, in all of your suffering, in all of your exile, in all of your discomfort? What if that's exactly where I want you? Because in that place, you'll learn to be dependent on me. In that place, you will learn that you actually don't have what it takes and you'll look to me to be what it takes. 
So if we're going to live with the hope of Jeremiah 29, 11, if we're going to live with the mission, I hope Shalford is a church on mission with Jesus, not because we add a bunch of things to our schedule and we get really busy in the community feeling like that's another thing we've got to do. I hope we live on mission because it's an overflow. We say, you know what? God's put me here. And he's not put me here because I'm strong enough. He's not put me here because I have all the words to say. He's not put me here because he said, you know what, I'm gonna pick a team and I'm gonna put the perfect team together and, and, and build this roster full of gifts and max contracts and we're gonna sign these people up and I've got a stud community here. This is simultaneously hospital and aircraft carrier all in one. <laughs> people wanna use different illustrations for what the church is and the reality is it's all of it. We're wounded, hobbling sheep that they're putting in the cockpit of a fighter jet to go make a difference in the world for God. None of that makes sense. And God says, precisely, you're not meant to feel able. You're not meant to feel competent. You're meant to feel like you're in exile because that is a place you depend on me. That is what Paul was thinking of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he said, I had this great moment of glory caught up to the third heaven, whatever that means. And then I have this thorn in the flesh that I begged God, hey, could you take this away? It feels like it's hindering my ministry. Could you, could you take the thorn away, God? And then I'll be able to really, I mean, goodness, imagine what I could do without this thorn. I feel like I'm like 50, 60% capacity right now. You take this thorn out of my side, then I can really run for you. Take this thorn out of my side, then my marriage is gonna be healthy. Take this thorn out of my side, then maybe I'll invite my neighbors to church. Take this thorn out of my side, and then I'm gonna be in a place, God, where I can make a difference for you. But then, the Apostle Paul heard the whisper of God say, no, I'm leaving it. Because my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Do we want that word from the Lord? No, I don't. I want God's power to be made perfect in my power. I want his strength to be shown in my comfort. Look, at, I mean, I would prefer a Solomon kind of lifestyle. Look how good God is. I'm the richest and wisest man on earth. Is, amen? Isn't God good? But that's not what God invites us into. At least not yet. There will come a day when all of our exile ends can't lose sight of that. As long as we're journeying in this life, we're, on, we're in exile. We're not home. We're not home. We're not home. But just like the song Zach wrote for us this summer, all, the last line, all through this journey that I'm on, you won't leave me till I am home. There will come a day where the reality of what Jesus says in John comes true, and the place he's gone to prepare for us will be our place. I don't think that means a physical, like he went to seven galaxies away and prepared. Like, I don't think, I think what he's saying is the place I'm going is the presence of God, preparing a place in the presence of God for you, that you will be forever. And then God will come to this earth, and what will be amazing is God won't take us out of exile and bring us to another place, what we actually read in scripture is God renews the heavens and the earth so that our place of exile becomes our home forever. God does not take his people out of suffering. He leads them through it. He doesn't take his people out of exile. He sustains them through it. So, settle down. 
build houses, plant gardens. You know what that sounds like? Live like you're already in the new kingdom before it's a reality. Pretend like you're in heaven. And then Jesus takes a spin on that and says, yeah, let's pretend like we're in heaven. Let me teach you how to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. Your kingdom come to this land. Your kingdom come to this neighborhood. And let me, like Eugene Peterson says, act the miracle. And you know what I love about these instructions of how to live in a faithful presence? Is they're so stinking ordinary. Gosh, he doesn't say build some massive platform, do some massive thing. Hey, amass an incredible amount of wealth so that you can bring a great influence to the Babylonian Empire. He says to plant a stinking garden. He says to build a house. You want to be on mission for God? Pursue the health of your family. And then invite your friends and your neighbors and your kids' friends at school who might not have that to come and see. Seeking the wholeness of our community includes both words and works. And this is all the work of ordinary people, not the spiritually elite. That's what we've been saying this whole time. This is not for those who are put together. This is for those who are dependent on Jesus. So how do we even begin? I think we begin with prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is what Jesus said. Your kingdom come. We begin to pray that. Everywhere we go, what if everywhere you went this week, you just took one moment to pray, God, I pray that your kingdom would come here. I pray that your kingdom would come as I'm shopping for groceries. I pray that your kingdom, and then you begin to think creatively, what would it look like for God's kingdom to come? What would it look like for his kingdom to come in my kid's class this year? I mean, I can't do everything, but what can I do? God, God, what does it look like for your kingdom to come even in my home? What does it look like for your kingdom to come? I'm walking into Starbucks to get coffee with someone. God, your kingdom come. We can begin with prayer, but then I think the other key ingredient to this is presence. How is God inviting you to be faithfully present where he's already placed you? We're not talking about adding something on to your already busy schedule. We're talking about redeeming your already busy schedule and realizing the fact that God is with you in the workplace. God is with you at the bus stop. God is with you in the classroom at your kid's Christmas party. God is with you all of the time. So we can pray and we can be present and then I think we can, just like Jesus did to us, we can extend an invitation. Not make a demand, but we can extend an invitation. An invitation to what? Well, you can extend an invitation into your life. Hey, why don't you come over for dinner? Hey, why don't we grab coffee? Why don't we grab breakfast? Why don't we grab lunch? Hey, I... I go to church. It's part of what I do. Have you ever been? Well, I'd love for you to come with me. We're not weird. Not really weird anyway. Like what if you just extended an invitation to say, why don't you come with me? What if you extended an invitation to Jesus? Take that to another step. Here's the beauty of extending an invitation. We're not asking you to make a presentation. 
God is not expecting you to have the five-minute presentation like a knife salesman on your front step to be able to give some pithy answer about who Jesus is and what he's done, and here's exactly what you can do to be saved today, and here's four steps, boom, your life has changed. What God wants you to do is to own just how broken you are and how, how much you might not have any answers, but simply be that in the presence of others and say, would you come? Would you consider this Jesus? We can consider him together. And then when they ask a question you don't know the answer, you can go, I don't know. But let's go figure it out. And they'll say, doesn't your pastor know? And you'll say, no. He really doesn't know a lot. <laughs> but he's got a lot of books in his office. We can go check some of them out. But the point is we're being faithfully present. Building houses, planting gardens, building families, praying, and inviting people to see the beauty of the kingdom of God, which is a beauty that doesn't save us out of exile, but it saves us through it by the only one who's ever been a faithful exile, and that is the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.